Please join me in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we pray now as we open up your word. God, we pray for wisdom and direction to understand it. Lord, I pray that your spirit would assist us to give us understanding as how we ought to live, Lord. And God, grant us the courage to live by the conviction that you have laid upon our hearts to live according to your word as it directs us, God, to think according to the goodness of your will. I pray, Lord, that you will grant me the courage to speak clearly, the clarity of mind, God, to proclaim what you have revealed to us in your word. And I pray that we would leave better equipped, God, to function as you have designed this church to function and better equipped to live for your glory. We praise your name. Amen. Well, I invite you to open up to the book of Ephesians if you have not already. That's going to be where we are going to be for the bulk of our time this morning. So I would uh, keep a finger there. We'll bounce around to a couple different places. Uh, but that is where we will find ourselves for the most part this morning. Now, the last couple of years, this isn't anything new. I don't think this is a news flash for any of us, but it has been dizzying for many Christians and the church, particularly here in America. Uh, we have been faced with a lot of new threats, new ideas, new controversies that have caused us to think critically about how the Bible addresses these situations that we find ourselves in. Like I was saying, there are things that we have not had to think about. There are things that we have not had to make decisions about before, but now we find ourselves confronted nonetheless. Now, the issue that has probably screamed the loudest recently and most recently in our country and in Christian circles is the recent resurgence of what is called the social gospel. I call it a resurgence because it is not new. It's nothing new. It's just rebranded and repackaged. As has been said many times before, there is no new heresy, only repackaged heresies. And it has been disturbing to see so many people that I and many of you, many others in, in Christian circles have trusted and been encouraged by their ministries and their teaching. It's been discouraging to see them fall into lines that our wayward culture has been forming. It's been remarkable uh, to see voices that we have, we have trusted, uh, that we have recommended and have been encouraged by ourselves, seemingly bend the knee to our culture and the demands of it uh, ever so slightly. Well, I have wanted to do something that will address the issue of the social gospel and what it is, the threats that it presents to the church today. I wanted to be able to present to you a clear and concise picture of what the Bible says about this movement and how we ought to be addressing it. Unfortunately, my time is limited and I lack the ability to lay out the case that I would want to in a very concise manner. I think we would find ourselves to be here for hours uh, and there will be a lot of rambling. So in an effort to prevent either of those options, uh, this morning uh, I want to see, speak to something a little bit more specific. I, I'm always hesitant to speak broadly about something, pulling from various texts and passages. I know when I was going to Master's, uh, John uh, MacArthur would often come with notes scrambled, scribbled down on a napkin 
or scrap piece of paper, and he would be able to uh, graciously exposit the word for the next 45 minutes uh, based on a three-word outline that he had written down on a napkin. Uh, I clearly do not have that discipline uh, or that gifting. Uh, I cannot speak so widely and so uh, uh, eloquently, so we are not going to do that this morning. Uh, And Maybe in another 30 years, uh, I might be able to take a swing at something like that. But rather, what I would like to do this morning is speak to a doctrine that I see being threatened by this false gospel, by a social gospel, and the heresy spouted by our culture, that there are certain doctrines that are threatened by uh, directly by what is being propagated and uh, celebrated in our culture, or uh, indirectly are threatened, And what I want to do this morning is address the topic of the unity of the church, because I think that this is something that has fallen into the crosshairs of a social gospel movement, that it may seem like an odd place to land, but let me set the scene for you and and why I think this is worth our, our discussion and our attention this morning. One of the main driving forces in our country and our culture has been the Black Lives Matter movement and the propagation of critical race theory. While I don't have the time to do a deep dive into these things, uh, and the main, I'd like to uh, touch on some of the main tenets, but I hope to do something uh, about this in the future in uh, a Foundations Bible study uh, setting, but this is not the time and place for that. One of the pillars uh, of thinking is that everyone breaks down into one of two categories. You are either a member of the oppressed party or you are a member of the oppressor party. That it sees everyone in a dualistic sense. You are either an oppressor or you are a part of the oppressed. If your skin lacks pigmentation, you are a member of the oppressors. If you have additional pigmentation in your skin, you are a member of the oppressed party. Regardless of your background, regardless of your life experience, you find yourselves in one of these two parties. There's no deliverance from the guilt of belonging to the oppressor party. There is no way out. You are guilty. Uh, There was recently uh, a study uh, done. It was a paper released uh, in a psychology uh, journal, and it uh, has said that whiteness is an illness uh, that is a psychological illness, and that uh, it said the cure is unknown, and you uh, are not able to recover from it. Uh, and and that is what is being written out there today. There is no salvation from the oppressor group. The idea is uh, worked its way into broadening this practice through intersectionality. Now, these are maybe words that you have heard of, and maybe you're a little fuzzy on what these mean. Intersectionality basically uh, is the idea that the more categories of oppression that you're able to check off in your life, uh, the more oppressed you are, and the more your voice should be heard and elevated over the voices of the people who are less oppressed. So in my category, I'm the, probably the last person that you should be listening to, uh, being a white, hetero, cisgendered, which is uh, a word that was created uh, to basically say, uh, I identify as the gender that God created me as. Uh, but I am a white, heterosexual, cisgendered uh, male Uh, living in America. So uh, I would be the last person that would have the authority to be able to speak to you uh, on any of these issues, according to this idea of intersectionality. 
Uh, one of the leading Christian voices, and I would put that in quotations, uh, wrote in a book a few years ago uh, that he says he holds that all white people are racist, whether consciously or subconsciously. And he says that racism is the absolute overarching sin that the church has to deal with in the present day. Uh, we see that this is the influence of our culture on the church, and it is coming in, and it is coming in from all angles. There's an abundance of dangers with this line of thinking, but I want to focus on one, how this threatens the unity of the church. These modern doctrines are seeping into the church, and those that profess to be Christians are adopting these ideas. Rather than seeing themselves as being a redeemed citizen of heaven first and foremost, other identities are now being elevated above that. And worse than that, it is causing members of the church to see each other for something other than what we are, a new creation in Christ Jesus. It elevates certain perspectives above others, giving authority to others based upon their life experience or the color of their skin. We are seeing churches split and divide in these in these areas, over these ideas, uh, there's a church in Virginia, thousands of members, and there's a fear of this philosophy seeping into uh, the elders, and it is functionally split the church of David Platt. And it is having a similar effect in churches all around the country. We must make sure that when we stand opposed to these ideas, that we do not stand on political platforms, but we stand on biblical truth. The temptation is to take our speaking points to confront this this heresy of our culture. There's a temptation to take our speaking points from the culture itself. And maybe you watch a, a cable news program that gives you political speaking points to confront an ideology that is unbiblical. But oftentimes, the speaking points to confront the ideology are unbiblical themselves. We must respond to these issues biblically and not politically. It's not enough to confront something as a political threat or a sociological danger, but we need to address it from the biblical perspective and acknowledge that at its base, it is a theological issue, that this is a theological problem, not a sociological one. This morning, we're going to look at what Paul has to say as he was addressing the issue of division in the church of uh, Ephesus. And Paul is calling us to live out the unity that God has already purchased for us at the cross. The message will be broken up into two sections. The first will help us understand our call for the preservation of unity, and then that will be called for us to understand the premise of the unity that we experience. So we'll see the preservation of the unity, and then secondly, we'll see the premise of our unity. In order to understand the context of what Paul is speaking of here in the book of Ephesians, it's helpful to understand the greater outline of the book of Ephesians itself. Like many of Paul's epistles, he generally breaks it down into two sections, the first one being laying out doctrine. We see that in many of his epistles. We were just going through the book of Romans uh, a few years ago uh, from the pulpit here and in Foundations Bible study. And we see in the book of uh, Romans in verse, uh, chapters 1 through 11, laying out the doctrine of salvation in 12 through uh, the end of the book. 
laying out the how then should we live in light of this doctrine. We see the same thing here in the book of Ephesians. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul is laying out the doctrine of salvation, who we are, the benefits, the spiritual blessings, predestinations of the saints, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the riches of our inheritance, the sin-defeating grace of God, and much more. All of these doctrines that we find ourselves to be foundational and built upon. Then he builds on that in chapters 4 through 6 and says, how do we live in light of this doctrine? How does this influence the way that we live? Well, we see right at the beginning of chapter 4, this is the hinge pin of the book. And that is where we're going to find ourselves this morning. In light of everything that Paul has laid out, the doctrine of salvation, the grace of God, the overruling grace of God over our sin. In light of all of this, this is what Paul wants us to know and how Paul wants us to live. So we see, first of all, in the first three verses, the preservation of our unity. Let me read through the verse three verses together, if you would. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, Paul is saying, in light of all the doctrine, in light of all the truth that I've just laid out, what do I want you to do? He says simply, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. He starts by reminding them, as he does in verse 1 of chapter 3, that he is in bondage as a result of the gospel and his commitment to it. But he insists on continuing to proclaim it to them. And he says, I urge you, This idea of urging comes from the Greek word, it's parakaleo. It's a familiar word where you put your arm around someone. This is not Paul speaking down to his audience. It is him coming alongside of them, putting his arm around them and saying, look, I'm urging you, I'm beseeching you, I'm admonishing you. Please pay attention to this. Live this way. Think this way. Let's do this together. I urge you to walk I urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This idea of walking, it's used 49 times in the New Testament, 47 times it is used metaphorically. It simply means the conduct of our life, how we live our life, the pattern of our life, the pattern of our conduct. That is our walk. Interestingly enough, out of the 47 times it is used metaphorically in the New Testament, eight of them are used here in the book of Ephesians. Seems to be a continuing theme uh, within the book of Ephesians. But he is saying, uh, pay close attention to the way that you live. Pay close attention to the way that you walk. The decisions that you make, your behavior, what you do day in and day out. Make the pattern of your life consistent with your calling. Your calling unto salvation and into the church. Now, what is, he goes on to define what is the manner that is worthy of our calling? What, what does this look like? And he quickly defines it. This is not an all-encapsulating list for us to follow, but it's certainly good enough to start us off. It gives us plenty of material to work with. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. All three of these have to do with how we interact with each other. These are nuts and bolts relational issues. 
So how do we live out the calling which, which we've been called? He says how we interact with each other, how we deal with each other. That is how our salvation is lived out. That is how we walk according to what we believe. And if you think it through the aspect of humility, of gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, the epitome of this calling is Christ himself. And you look at Philippians chapter 2, how Paul calls and admonishes the church at Philippi to have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, right? Why don't we flip over to Philippians real quick, probably just a couple pages in your Bible. Verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. There is humility. Taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, in verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. That is the call that Paul lays on our hearts. How do we live out our calling? By taking on the humility of Christ. We know as James calls us, he says, look, faith without works is dead. Fundamentally, baseline, faith without works is dead. You claim to walk with Christ, but you don't look like Christ. Your behavior does not look like Christ. Your faith is dead. Paul says here, similar to uh, Romans 12, where it is our uh, common duty. It is the obvious outflow of, it is the common sense outflow of the gospel for us to live this way, to be, become living sacrifices that this is the automatic outflow of the redeemed heart to interact with each other with humility, gentleness, patience. I don't think we need to belabor the point here. We are all familiar with what humility, gentleness, and patience looks like. Most vividly, we are familiar with them because we know what it looks like when we do not live with humility, gentleness, and patience. We know those times in our own hearts when we don't have, we don't exercise that towards our brothers and sisters, when we aren't humble, when we aren't gentle, when we're not bearing with them. This idea of bearing is literally holding something up. That as believers, we are called to bear with one another in love. That when someone has a burden, we come alongside of them and we hold that burden with them. When someone is dealing with a weakness, a trial, a tribulation of any kind, we come alongside of them and we hold that burden with them. And then he says, we should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This idea of eagerness, it's an idea of diligence, shows attentiveness and effort that you are being going to specific direct directions in order to achieve this, that you are being purposeful. It doesn't happen automatically. You don't wake up and 
fall out of bed and preserve and maintain the unity of the spirit. That it takes attention, it takes purpose, it takes effort. And the unity of the spirit here is an interesting thing. Sort of the, uh, the, the positional and the practical. That positionally we are righteous before God, right? Positionally before God, when he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. We are positionally righteous before God. Practically speaking, we fail on a daily basis, hour in, hour out. Positionally we're righteous. Practically speaking, we're becoming sanctified in Christ. The same issue here. We have unity that God has created. God has created unity. Now we must preserve that unity and live up to that unity. It is an example of something that God has declared, but we have a responsibility to maintain, to take specific steps and to be diligent to maintain unity. God declared us righteous positionally, and now we seek to act righteous practically. The same thing, God has declared us to be united and have unity, and now we take steps, diligent steps, in order to maintain that. John MacArthur says the spiritual unity that already exists would be practically manifested in complete harmony among the people of God. Characteristically, that's what the church should look like, complete harmony among the people of God. Now, praise, praise the Lord I've heard many nightmare stories and seen some play out in churches where division is created over very foolish things. And praise the Lord, I pray that that is not common among us. But we must be careful because it starts in an individual heart, our own. And that is where it must be confronted primarily. The idea that unity comes from man is foreign to the New Testament. The world offers no unity. That there is nothing that this world can do that can create any lasting unity. There is no charismatic leader that will be able to ensure it. There is no perfectly crafted piece of legislation that will ensure unity. Because man is sinful. And sin divides. Unity, true unity, comes from God alone and was purchased at the cross. True unity is a result of the gospel and the gospel alone. We see in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, 13, it says, In one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves, or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. We will speak to this Jew and Gentile division in a little bit uh, as we look back at chapter 2, what uh, Pastor Russ uh, read for us just a brief time ago. He says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Let your manner be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether that I come to see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Later on, Philippians 2.2 2 says, Complete my joy by being of 
the same mind, having the same love, being full accord and of one mind. You see a pattern develop throughout the pages of the New Testament. It is the pattern of unity and the unity of the church. Not just that it is a doctrine to be trusted, but it is something to be maintained, something to be pursued, something to be fought for on an individual basis and collectively as a church body. The natural state of things, the natural state of human humanity is to be opposed to each other. We ought not to be surprised when disunity arises, when opposition turns its head. That is not a surprising thing because that is the flesh. That is the natural course of humanity. That is what Jude was warning against in the, in the book of Jude. Real quickly, I don't have this in my notes here, but let me turn to the book of Jude where he's telling them to contend for the truth. And he says that, uh, that these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit, that it is these who cause divisions. It is these who twist scripture. That it is not truth that divides. It is truth that unites. False doctrine is that which divides. When we stand on truth, we stand on God. We stand on the truth of God. And we know that God's nature is to bring unity to his church. John Stott has this to say. He says, men still build walls of partition and division like the terrible Berlin Wall. Or erect invisible curtains of iron or walls of bamboo. Or construct barriers of race, color, caste, tribe, or class. Divisiveness is a constant characteristic of every community without Christ. You could, you, you could airdrop in the remote tribes, tribes that have not been reached by Western civilization, right? You could drop in the middle of them and you will find a class system. You will find division. You will not find a utopian society that is completely united. Now, we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is interesting here. As we break this verse down, we're eager to maintain this unity in the bond of peace. This idea of bond, it is literally what binds together the structure. It is, it is like the ligaments on, on, in your body that hold together the, the, the bones. Metaphorically, it's like the bond between children and their parents. That this is what ties people together. This is what ties structures together. That you take that, that bond off and the thing just collapses. If you did not have any ligaments in your body, your muscles and bones would not hold together. Were you to remove the bond of peace, there would be no unity. What is it that unites us together? What unites us together is the bond of peace. 
peace among believers achieved through the cross of Jesus Christ. Peace binds us together, recalling the peace that Christ brought between two parties that were so at odds with each other. We were children of wrath, right? What holds us together with Christ? What holds the church together with God? It is the bonds of peace of the blood of Christ. That is what holds us together with God. What makes us one minute a child of wrath at enmity with God? You look back at Ephesians chapter 2. We were sons of disobedience, dead in our trespasses and sins. The only difference between then and now is the bond of peace through Jesus Christ that holds us together with God. And that is what binds us together as believers. It is the peace that we live with, the security of salvation. There is no treaty If you think about this, there is no treaty that has ever been established by man that has not been broken. Any treaty established today that we have will eventually be broken. I I recall, some of you may be familiar with this. Um, I certainly wasn't alive at the time. But in 1938, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain of Great Britain saw... Hitler and Germany rising, causing trouble. People were getting antsy, recalling World War I and the devastation that that brought to the continent of Europe. And he goes to Munich to meet with Adolf Hitler, triumphantly returns, coming off the airplane, and says, I've returned from Germany with peace for our time. Less than a year later, Hitler would invade Poland. The peace for our time lasted less than a year and only ushered in some of the most tumultuous years in the history of humanity. That man offers no peace. There is no lasting peace that man can engineer. Outside of the gospel, we have no peace. It cannot be legislated. It cannot be taught in schools. And it certainly cannot be mandated and forced upon people. It only comes through the gospel. So like ligaments hold the members of the human body together, so too the peace of God binds us together. If God has declared peace with us, how could we then dare threaten that peace? God has declared it to be a peaceful situation. And man so foolishly brings in error to disrupt that peace. What is this unity? Let us look a little bit more closely at what Paul means by this unity. When we speak of unity, I want to be careful and want to be clear that what I am not speaking about is ecumenism. Some people, when you speak about unity, they think about everything that you could get rid of and still hold hands and agree. Ecumenism is is when theological convictions are set aside for the sake of being able to stand with those who care little for Christianity and the truth claims of the Bible. Paul's not looking for us to surrender a platform of biblical truth, but rather to stand firm together upon it. The unity of the Spirit is not all-inclusive. It is anything but the opposite. It is quite exclusive and unique to the redeemed. The road is narrow, right? 
we would assume if the road is narrow, the unity would probably be narrow as well. Why would we try to broaden the unity and surrender biblical truth for the sake of a false unity? And that is what some people have tried to do and attempted. When I was younger, uh, you had evangelicals and Catholics together, and you looked at that and said, that's ridiculous. Why, why are people surrendering clear biblical truth in order to find some sort of false unity on false doctrine, on false premise? That is not the unity that we're talking about. The unity we're talking about is standing firm upon the truth that God so clearly lays out in Scripture. And this unity was foretold in John chapter 17. If you can, turn to John chapter 17. Keep a finger in Ephesians as we'll be turning back there shortly. But in John chapter 17, Christ is praying his high priestly prayer, passing on his last words of instruction. And in this prayer... He says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only. When he says these only, he's talking about the disciples, those who are with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Did you know you're in the Bible? That's you. That's me. So he says, he's praying. I'm not praying for these only, but I'm praying for those that will believe. Those that will trust in the message of the gospel. Verse 21, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. It's a remarkable thought. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Noticing a pattern here, right? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What is the evidence of, Of the gospel, it is a unity of the church. How is it that people may know that Christ and God are one? It is through the unity of the church. When the church functions as God has designed it to function, it proclaims the gospel of Christ to the world around us. And vice versa, when you flip that on its head, when we look like the world, we look like the foolishness that it believes. And there's no gospel truth there. Some remarkable words from Christ in his prayer. He clearly prays that we would be one for the sake of the gospel, that the world may know that God sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins. That is what is at stake. You surrender church unity. You give in to church division. You sow seeds of division within a church body. You threaten the gospel and the effect of the gospel in the world around us. That is what is at stake here. 
the unity that was purchased at the cross back in the book of Ephesians is most significantly seen in the division between Jew and Gentile. And as Pastor LeMay read for us just a little bit ago in Ephesians chapter 2, I think we can read through those verses and not understand the depth of the division between Jew and Gentile. We see that a little bit within the, the Gospels, the distaste that the Jews had for the Gentiles, the division that was there, they would have nothing to do with the Gentiles. They were unclean to the very core. You look at the way that they treated the Samaritans, and they were half Jewish. They were half Gentile. They despised the Gentiles. Even if you were a proselyte, and had come to believe in Yahweh as God, if you were in the temple, there was a line which you could not cross because you were not Jewish. And on that line, there hung a sign that was called the Thanatos description. Now, one of my daughter's favorite words, she's quickly leaning over to her grandmother and excited at the the prospect of Thanatos. It means death. Death. The death inscription, meaning that if a Gentile were to cross that line, you could put them to death. There was just cause to kill them simply for crossing a physical line. Now, it is no surprise, as you see throughout the books of of Paul, specifically in the book of Galatians, he's dealing with the Judaizers. These people who see people believing in the God of the Old Testament and then coming behind Paul and saying, well, great, now that you're on our program, now you have to adopt all our ways and you have to worship as we would worship. You, can't, you have to give up all of, all of your Gentileness and you have to adopt all of the Judaistic principles and observations. We see in chapter 2, verse 12 of Ephesians, It says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. That was our state before Christ stepped in. We were without hope, without God. But now... Verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I believe there Paul is talking about that dividing wall in the temple that had the Thanatos description upon it. He's saying there is no division among Jew and Gentile anymore. These two parties where even if you were Gentile, you could not step foot in a Jewish household without making the entire house unclean. They stood absolutely opposed to each other. We know in the book of Romans, if you remember in Foundations Bible Study, we often talked about this that under Emperor Claudius, there became such a rise of disunity within Rome between Jews and Christians that Emperor Claudius looked at it and says, here are Jews, and here is a Jewish cult called Christianity, and they are fighting amongst themselves. I must kick all of them out. And Claudius kicked all Jews out of Rome. Temporarily, they were able to come in many years later. But that is the setting 
that, uh, that Paul is writing the book of Romans to the church at Rome, that they're dealing with this natural animosity that built up there. They stood opposed to each other. They were fighting these battles on the ground in every church of this time. But he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. We live in a culture that wants to separate people into different classes. That is undoing what Christ has accomplished at the cross. Christ died to make one new man, the church, in place of the two, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There should be no hostility in the church. There is no place for that. The idea of killing hostility here is another one of my daughter's favorite words. You can probably guess what it is, right? Apoctino. I kill, destroy. Right? Yes. I kill. It is abolished. It is non-existent. It does not live anymore. My daughter's a very fearsome creature. <laughs> Watch yourself. She looks sweet. John Chrysostom, uh, an early church father, says, Paul, this is like in the 300, so not much time has gone by. Paul did not say that Christ dissolved it. He did not say that he put it to an end, but he used the much more forceful expression, he killed. This shows that the enmity need not ever rise again. How then does it rise again? From our great wickedness. So long as we remain in the body of Christ, so long as we are one with him, it does not rise again, but lies dead. John MacArthur says, There is only one body of believers, the church, which is composed of every saint who has trusted or will trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. There is no denominational, geographical, ethnic, or racial body. There is no Gentile, Jewish, male, female, slave, or free man body. There is only Christ's body, and the unity of that body is the heart of the book of Ephesians. We're familiar with Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. There's no division in Christ. There is no division in Christ. There is no class in Christ. There is no race in Christ. We are one as Christ is one. 
vertical and horizontal reconciliation, John Piper says, happen together and inseparably through the faith in Christ, that we are brought together. We have vertical reconciliation between us and God. And at the cross, you and I and you and you and you and every believer are reconciled together at the cross. And anything that threatens that reconciliation is a false gospel. Back in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, he says, He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Is Christ divided? Certainly not. Therefore, the church must not be. Owen Strand, in his new new book, uh, Christianity and Wokeness, says God's plan was unity for his image bearers, but not uniformity. Distinction and difference and diversity are not viewed negatively, but positively in a biblical worldview. What we must not say is that we must be a homogeneous structure. We all, praise God, bring our own backgrounds and our own ethnicities with us. That is why potlucks are so good. (laughs) We all bring our own wonderful personalities and backgrounds with us. But that does not create division. That brings great color and flourish to the body of Christ. Now, what is the premise of our unity? We see a call to preserve the unity. And interestingly enough, you would think, at least in my mind, if I was writing this out, I would first start with the premise and then work to the call to preserve. Paul does it the other way around, and he was inspired by God, so I will cede to him. What is the premise of our unity? Verses four through six. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The premise of our unity is the unity of God Himself, the unity of the Trinity. There is No division within the Godhead. That is the foundation of our unity. He starts off in verse 4. It says, one body, one universal, invisible church. What that means is that we are a local church body. We meet together. Now, it is very unlikely that every single person in this room is saved and a part of the, the, the universal church of God. That is why sometimes you will hear Catholic used in a small C sense. That, that means universal, Catholic, universal, not big C Catholic, little C Catholic. This is the local appearance and form of the church. But there is one universal Catholic invisible church. And God knows who belongs to that. We must beware of the practice of designer churches or philosophies that tend to segregate believers based on anything other than the blood of Christ. We have a lot of designer churches today, right? That if you lived in a more populous area and not around Chester, New Hampshire, which is the opposite of that. But if you lived in more populous, when I lived in California, in LA, there were designer churches everywhere. 
And they would purposely segregate people on many occasions based on how you best felt comfortable worshiping. So if you wanted a young hip church, you would go to the young hip church. If you were a first generation immigrant to the United States, you would go to a first generation immigrant church of people of similar ethnicity. They were, they were everywhere. The designer churches, it is, check off the boxes. What do you like in a church? How does it meet your expectations or your felt needs? And you check off those boxes and it matches you up. That is not the church of God. Your church should look as varied as your population looks. You should have young and old. You should have people of so many different ethnicities and backgrounds. Depending upon the culture that you're in. There are some, and I have to be careful because I don't want to get too off on this. But there were some that would say, even if your population around the location of your church is very homogeneous of one ethnicity, if your church does not reflect the greater ethnicity of the country, then it is at fault. That you should be going steps to attract people of different ethnicities. And, and again, that is, that is narrowing down and dividing the body of Christ. That is a foreign concept to the Bible. That is the opposite of the gospel. We are, Owen Strand says this, we are united to Christ and as a result we have real spiritual union with one another. This union is far deeper than any, any worldly affinity or connection. It is a spiritual unity. It comes from heaven. It defies the devil. It is more powerful than hate. It doesn't try to bring us together. It decisively makes Christians a family in objective terms. And I'll speak to this a little bit more in the conclusion and the wrap up. But we are one church. We are one body. And there's one spirit. The Holy Spirit binds us all together, just as we saw. The Holy Spirit binds us together. Jude 19, it is these who cause divisions. Worldly people devoid of the spirit. When the spirit is not present, when God, the spirit is absent, division is present. And where the Holy Spirit resides, unity resides. And just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, our calling is all the same. We were just talking uh, yesterday. We had uh, the Gagne's over and we're chatting with our neighbors and we're talking about those fun visitors that sometimes you have come to your door uh, that want to talk to you about uh, false doctrine. And we were talking about how even in the Jehovah's Witnesses, you have the 144,000, the special uh, Christians who get the special heaven, right? And even though they can't tell you who the 144,000 actually are, uh, that is creating division and class within the church. It should be pretty easy to, to, to see that they do not all have one hope, as Paul says here. We were all called to the one hope, We all strive for Christ-likeness and the eternal weight of glory. That is all of our goals. Then we see in verse 5, he speaks to the fact that Christ is one. 
Lord here, and it says one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One Lord refers to Christ. Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. One faith, one body of doctrine, one gospel truth. There is not one truth for me, one truth for you. There is one gospel truth that we stand on, one faith. Jude chapter 3, or Jude chapter 3, Jude verse 3. The faith that was once for all delivered for the saints. That we are called to contend for the truth, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. There is one faith, there is one baptism. Finally, verse 6, it reflects the unity of God. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. God the Father. There is no division within God the Father. God is sovereign. He is over all. He is omnipotent. He is through all. And he is omnipresent. He is in all. There is no division in God. Therefore, there is no division in the church. Just as the Godhead is one, so the church is united together. So why is unity so important? I hope by now you have an understanding of why unity is important. As we saw in John chapter 17, why is this a doctrine worth fighting for? You see that the displayed unity of the church is a testimony to the world around us. It is a testimony that God is one. And we see here in Ephesians that it reflects the unity of the Godhead. That God himself is one. And we reflect that unity in the church. Therefore, there is no place for division. The world should be able to look at what is going on in the church and see a marked difference than what they see going on in the world. One of the scariest things that you see so many people that are trusted voices within evangelical Christianity bending a slight knee to this movement is appears to be giving way to pressure of our culture. I don't think they would say that they're trying to be relevant, but it certain appears certainly appears that way. But if we try to look like our culture, then we have failed the mission of the church itself to stand out and to be the example of unity of God for the world to see. When you see disunity, partiality, injustice, division, or discrimination of any kind, the only true and lasting answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And likewise, true unity is only found in the gospel. There is no doubt that racism, partiality exists in our world and within our country. I don't like using the term racism because I don't find that in the Bible. Uh, It says that God created one mankind in, in Acts. God created one man. I prefer the term partiality because I find that to be a biblical idea. That partiality exists in our world. It is true. And many of us experience the sin of partiality against us in different ways, in different forms. We cannot debate the the presence of partiality in our world because sin is present in our world. 
There are no doubt people that suffer injustice day in and day out in one form or another. The problem is that our world is wanting to find a social and economic way out of this perceived injustice. The problem is that these issues find their root in the heart of sinful man. No social program or economic boon will change the human heart. Only the gospel can do that. True reconciliation of mankind is only possible through the power of Christ. The philosophies of man, like critical race theory and many others, are, are, not, only, are not the only threats to church unity. I wouldn't want to set up here and create uh, a, a, a straw man that we can easily attack and say that is the only thing that we must be concerned about. There is a greater and more constant threat that we must be on guard against. That's our flesh. We must be responsible for the way that we respond to each other. Division does not come from out. Division comes from within. We must constantly be on guard against thoughts of animosity, of holding grudges, holding wrongs against one another. We must be long-suffering. We must be patient. We must be humble. We must be gentle. And we must bear with one another in love. For that is what Christ has done for us. And that is how we ought to live with one another. That is why the unity of the church is so important and a doctrine worth fighting for and worth addressing. It is a direct result of the gospel. It is the gospel lived out on full display for the whole world to see. Now I'd like you to take a moment. This may feel weird. I'd like you to take a moment. I'd like you to look around the room. We do this when we did this back in archaic times when we met physically for Bible study. I'd like you to look around the room and I'd like you to look at all the different backgrounds, all the different ages, the different personalities in the room, the different ethnicities that are here and understand that were it not for the blood of Christ, we would have no reason for being together. We would not care about each other in simple terms. God has brought the church together in a, as a unique collection of sinners saved by grace to, refer, to reflect his glory. If it were not for the blood of Christ, there is little reason we would all be here. When we look around, we do not see a Caucasian. We do not see a person of Latin descent. And I'm going to stop there because if I even continue to generalize people by their ethnicities, I will be in trouble either today or 10 years when someone watches this. We do not see people who are old. We do not see people who are young. We do not see see people who are students. We do not see people who are employed. We do not see people who are unemployed. We do not see weak. We do not see healthy. We do not see strong 
we see my brother. I see my sister in Christ. When we look around, we see our family. When we look around this room, we see the bride of Christ. And what God has brought together, let no man tear asunder. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we, we stand before you as a group of believers who are brought together in the blood of Christ, whose lives are so intertwined, God, but sin threatens that in and out every season, every day. Sin threatens our unity, Lord, whether it be a cultural ideology or whether it be the function of our own selfishness, our own sin, our own lack of insistence to forgive and to hold grudges, to bear a grudge against each other, Lord. Lord, you have brought this body of believers together. We are the bride of Christ. And as the bride of Christ, Lord, I pray that we would live out the unity of the Godhead. We would reflect the truth of the gospel to the world around us and not seek to adopt its philosophies and ideologies. That we would not bend a knee to the pressure of sociological change, but that we would stand on theological conviction for your glory and for your purposes. Praise your name. Amen.